Well, it's good to finally make it over here and see the church. I've been praying for this church for quite some time now, and yet this is my first visit here at the church. And it's not just the building. I was excited to see it. I was obviously excited to see all of you. And uh, this is really cool. I like this setup here. And when Eric asked me to preach, he said, you guys were going through the book of Genesis, which is a fantastic book. If, if you understand the first three chapters of Genesis, you'll understand much more of the Bible. It makes sense to you. But then I heard you're doing Joseph. You're right at the beginning of Joseph, which is probably my favorite story in the Old Testament. It always wasn't my favorite story in the Old Testament. I remember uh, back in 2006, I was in a Bible study with my wife. I don't know if we were engaged or married, but it was that year we got married. And uh, one of my friends from high school, his parents started a Bible study, and we had three other couples that we were all engaged or married. And he started off the Bible study with asking, what's your favorite Bible story? And I remember, I don't know why I remember this, but I remember being really freaked out about that question because I grew up in the church there in Gridley, Christ Community of Gridley. But I like to say I annoyed my parents enough by the time I hit eighth grade that they decided to stop taking me because I hated church as a kid. I just wanted nothing to do with the church, did not want to be there at all. And so I was nervous because I was familiar with Bible stories, but I didn't know what necessarily made for a good Bible story. And one of my friends, he said, well, the story of Joseph. And I thought, that's kind of a silly answer. What's so great about Joseph? Because in my head, all I knew about the story of Joseph was when I was a kid, I had to go to this musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. How many of you seen that? All right, quite a few of you. Yeah. I hated that as a kid. <laughs> and I had to go to that like two or three times. Our Sunday school class went to it. One, I don't like musicals. And then two, it was a Bible story. So at that stage of my life when I was an unbeliever, I just thought that was terrible. But now... Being a believer and knowing the story of Joseph, I do think it is the best story you can read in the Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And ev all of us here can probably resonate with Joseph in some way. How many of you have had life turn out differently than what you expected? Yeah, yeah all of us. If you've lived long enough, life turns out differently than what you expect. How many of you have experienced family conflict before? Yeah, this morning, right? <laughs> How many of you have been betrayed by friends at one time in your life? How many of you have had bad things happen to you when you've done what is right? How many of you have wondered, where are you, God? And whether we say that out loud or not, we all have wondered that at some point in our lives. There's so many different ways that the story of Joseph applies to our lives today and that we can resonate with. And so what I want to do today is kind of take a 30,000-foot view 
of the story of Joseph because the story of Joseph is very long. It covers the last 13 chapters in Genesis. So it probably wouldn't make for a great sermon if I just got up here and read Genesis 37 through 50 because that would be all of our time. And you'd wonder, the Eric, like, why would you invite that guy? But I'm just going to tell the story of Joseph, and then there's one basic truth that I want us to get from it, but I'm going to break it down in three points. But the basic truth is this. In this world, we will face sin and suffering, but because of God's sovereignty, we can trust that His purposes will be fulfilled. Now, I'm going to break that down for us in three points. But first, I just want to go over the story of Joseph because I don't know how many of you are familiar with that story, but I want to walk through it. <clears throat> and I know two weeks ago, Pastor Ryan, that was his name, right? Pastor Ryan, two weeks ago? Okay. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ryan started the story of Joseph in chapter 37, but he didn't make it very far. He just got to that chapter. But just to recap here, we see that Joseph, there's family drama right away in chapter 37. Joseph is about a 17-year-old, we think. He's a senior in high school. He's not the mama's boy, but he's daddy's favorite. And Jacob is the name of his father. Jacob makes him a coat of many colors, hence the Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. And that infuriates the brothers. And so on top of it then, Joseph has a dream that all his brothers bow down to him. And he's like, hey, that'll probably go over well. I should tell my brothers about that. And so he goes and tells the brothers, that doesn't go over well. But he has another dream where all the family bows down to him. And Joseph doesn't learn from the first time, so he tells the brothers again. And that infuriates them even more. And so then Jacob, his dad, says, go check on your brothers who are pasturing a flock in Shechem, which is about 50 miles away. And so Joseph goes with his fancy coat, and the brothers see him coming from a distance. And they devise a plot to beat Joseph up, kill him, and throw him in a pit. So you see this is a little bit more than just mere sibling rivalry. They're, they hate the man. And so they beat him up, they take his coat, throw him into a pit, and then they sit down and eat, and it just so happens that they did that near a trading route. And these Ishmaelites, I think that's how you pronounce them, Ishmaelites, were going to Egypt to make some sales and do some business. And they're like, hey, why don't we sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver? Then we can make some money off him. And so they do that, and Joseph then, he goes to Egypt and he's bought by Potiphar, who is a guard in Pharaoh's army. And then he becomes a slave for Potiphar. And he starts to rise up the ranks. And you're thinking, finally, Joseph's faithfulness, his righteousness is paying off. And he was in charge of all of Potiphar's house. But then Potiphar's wife was like, hey, Joseph's pretty attractive. Why don't you come lie with me in the bed? And Joseph runs, she grabs his cloak, and she comes up with this story about how Joseph was attracted to her and may have passed at her, which then enrages Potiphar. So then Joseph gets thrown into an Egyptian prison. Now at this point, 
Joseph's probably in his mid-20s. Can you imagine what he's thinking? He's been given these dreams by God that he would be in a place of authority, leadership, position. He's a part of God's people. He's daddy's favorite. He has this nice coat, and he ends up being beaten, betrayed, sold into slavery, and thrown into an Egyptian prison, which I'm assuming, this is an assumption, but I'm assuming Egyptian prisons back then didn't have very many rights as they do today. There probably wasn't the three meals a day. But anyways, Joseph, he continues to serve faithfully the Lord. We don't see anywhere in Scripture where he like shakes his fist at God and says, what are you doing? Now, I imagine he did wonder that. That's human nature, right? All of us would wonder, where are you, God, in that situation? But it tells us that the Lord was with him even while he was in prison. And again, he starts to rise up the ranks there. And uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker end up in that same prison. And one day they both have a dream. And Joseph says, I know how to interpret those dreams. And he gives them an interpretation which comes true. And so the baker is then killed by Pharaoh, and the cupbearer is restored to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, hey, cupbearer, remember me when you get before Pharaoh. And yet the cupbearer forgets him. Not for two days, not for two months, but for two more years. He just completely forgets Joseph. Until one day, Pharaoh has a dream that really bothers him. And the cupbearer, no, no one in Pharaoh's like cabinet, we can think of it that way, uh, knows how they interpret the dream. And the cupbearer says, hey, I know a guy. And so they, they bring Joseph up out of prison. Joseph stands before Pharaoh and interprets the dream and even gives him a plan on how he can do it because the dream was God warning Pharaoh that there's going to be seven years of plentiful grain in Egypt and then seven years of famine. And Joseph had a plan on how to deal with all that. And so Pharaoh's like, hey, you should become my right-hand man. And so Joseph goes from being imprisoned to the vice president of Egypt. That's, that's quite a rags the riches story right there. But it doesn't stop there because then Joseph's family, when the famine hits, they hear there's grain in Egypt, so they come to Egypt, which leads then to Joseph reconciling with his family. His family moves to Egypt, and he saves all of his family so they can continue on. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing story, and I know that's a very high view of it, and I passed over a lot there. But that is the ultimate rags to riches story there. Well, not the ultimate, Jesus would be, but that's a different story. And so, I said there's three points that I want us to leave with, but it's in one sentence. They're going to build on each other. In this world, we're going to face sin and suffering, but because of God's sovereignty, we can trust that His purposes 
will be fulfilled. And so three different points here. The first part of that, in this world, we will endure sin and suffering. We think Joseph was around 30 years old when he got out of prison, so that means he spent about 12 or 13 years either as a slave or as a prisoner. And hear this, all of that was not because of anything wrong he did. He had the Lord's blessing upon him, and yet he still had to go through all that before he fulfilled those dreams that the Lord gave him. God promised him leadership, authority, and yet he finds himself as a slave and a prisoner. This is something that we'll all experience, not slave and imprisonment, but something we all experience in life is sin and suffering. This, this world is broken. It's been like that since Genesis 3, and it's like that today. You know, we often wonder, why is there wars? Why are there pandemics? Why are there school shootings? Well, I don't like a simplistic answer to any of those, but one overarching reason why there's all those is because of Genesis 3, because there's sin and suffering, because this world is not as it should be. And that has to be part of our answer, that we'll experience heartache and brokenness in this world because it's fractured, it's broken. But yet, I want us to see a pattern that God often does throughout the Scriptures. We experience the suffering, hardships, and trials. In fact, in John 16, Jesus even says, in this world, you will have tribulations. But there's a pattern to it that the Lord does. It's suffering and hardships and then glory. He redeems it. You see this with the nation of Israel. In order for them to experience the glory of the Exodus, where they're freed from slavery in Egypt, the Lord says you're going to go through 400 years of slavery. There's suffering and then freedom. King David, when he's anointed king over Israel, he was anointed king, and then he was on the run for 15 years in his life before he actually sat on the throne. Jesus, our, our Lord and Savior, in Philippians chapter 2, it says that he was born in the likeness of man, took the form of the servant, was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But then right after that, it says he is given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. There's suffering and then glory. Paul, when traveling around to the churches in Acts Chapter 14, verse 22, what does he tell them to encourage the new Christians? What does he tell them? Look at your notes, Grant. He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There's tribulations that enter the kingdom of God. Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with them. It's all over the Bible. It is like, a, like the letter J. You go down into suffering with Christ, and you may not experience redemption in this life, but you will in glory experience redemption. 
That's the first point. In this life, you will face sin and suffering. The second part of that, even though we face sin and suffering, God is still sovereign. You see this in the story of Joseph. Sovereign means that he rules, he reigns, he orchestrates all things. This is why I love the story of Joseph. Because throughout this story, you don't see it until you get to the end and he's where he's at, reconciled to the family, saving them. But throughout the story, God is moving all kinds of pieces in order to get Joseph to provide deliverance for his family. And you never see, like, he doesn't split the Red Sea or rain down lightning bolts, but he's just moving his invisible hand. He's sovereign over all things. And, and listen to how Joseph talks about this after he's out of prison and talking to his family. In Genesis 45, verse 5, he's talking to the brothers. He says, and now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. How about that for forgiveness, right? Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And then verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father of Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. And then probably the theme verse of Genesis chapter 50, or of the book of Genesis, Genesis 50 verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And then maybe you think, well, that's just Joseph's opinion. Like, maybe he's the guy that always sees the glass half full, right? But then you read Psalm 105, so this is later, the psalmist talking about this moment. And he says, when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, God had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So this is a mystery. You see personal responsibility in those verses. Joseph even says it. You sold me here, brothers. But God sent me. You see personal responsibility and yet divine sovereignty. And they go together. They're not enemies. They're friends. Even notice in the psalmist, like he says, God summoned a famine. God's the one who brought that to the world. It wasn't like Satan did this, and the Lord's like, oh, how do I counteract this famine that Satan brought? No, it's all a part of God's plan. He was orchestrating through that. And I know that that may <laughs> cause us to have more questions and answers when it comes to the Lord. And that's something we got to wrestle with. There is mystery to God. If you're never confounded just kind of confused a little bit about God, 
Now, I feel like you got to dig deeper into the scriptures because it's hard to understand at times with our human minds, but shouldn't we expect that when we're trying to understand an eternal being and we don't have the full counsel? We have a ton of counsel from his word. Don't get me wrong. But there are things about the Lord to which he keeps to himself. And we will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and glory. But getting back to Joseph here and God's sovereignty, think through like all the details that had to fall into place for this story to happen. Jacob, Joseph's dad, had to make him a coat that would make the brothers jealous. And then Jacob just so happens to decide that Joseph should go check on the brothers who just so happen to be by a trading route that just so happens to have traders going to Egypt by at the time when they decide to sell. And it just so happens that the Pharaoh's guard decides to buy Joseph. And it just so happens that uh, Potiphar's wife finds Joseph attractive and ends up with his cloak to where she just so happens to come up with the story that throws him into prison to where he just so happens to come into contact with the cupbearer who just so happens to go before Pharaoh who just so happened to have a dream and then Joseph comes before Pharaoh rightly interprets it and gets promoted to VP. There's a lot of just so happens in Joseph's story. And there's a lot of just so happens in our lives as well. We can learn that God is in complete control. We wonder, is God really in control when we see darkness? And the answer is yes, he is. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every single dice roll that's done in Vegas, the Lord knows about. He knows it all. What hope does Joseph have if God isn't in control? as he's in prison. Just sitting there thinking, well, you know, God said I would be in a place of authority, but he's, he's trying the best he can, but I guess there's not much he can do here. No. That's not at all the thought process that I think Joseph was having. He was trusting in the Lord throughout that time. And think about how the grace that God was showing to Pharaoh by bringing Joseph into his life. This is starting a fulfillment of what God promised Abraham in Genesis 15, that he would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Joseph is being a blessing to the nation of Egypt. Have you ever thought that the reason why the Lord has you where he has you in life is so that you could be a blessing to someone else. The other day I was talking with one of the members of our church and they asked for a prayer because they were going to witness to their chiropractor and they were really nervous about it. And it was interesting. I followed up with her afterwards and was like, how'd it go? She's like, well, I, I started to talk to him about you know the Lord and... He said just last winter, one of his patients who was witnessing to him and helping him understand the Bible passed away. And so he said, hey, you, you know about Jesus. Can you help me 
understand. And it's like the Lord was setting it up. He has the thing rigged. He was working on the chiropractor before she even got there. And she had no clue. Earlier this year, we had another lady at our church. They've been coming for a few months. And she described herself last week, and I was working with her on a baptism packet, and she described herself as kind of witchy, which I've never met someone who would describe themselves as that way. And it was interesting because she came in with her husband, just had all kinds of questions about the Bible and God. And I tried my best to answer them. And they were like really strange questions that I don't really know about. Like she's asking a lot of questions about aliens. And I'm like, I, I don't know. The Bible really doesn't say much. I can tell you what John 3.16 says. But, um, and I did my best. And uh, at the end, she's like, you know, I like to read. And so I said, all right, well, here, because she had a lot of questions about heaven and hell. And I was like, here, read this book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. And it's a thick book, so I was like, just pick out the chapters that pertain to you. And uh, two days later, she sends me a text and says, Grant, for the first time in my life, I prayed last night and accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. You know, I was just so excited. I was like, no way, you know. And I see her at church that Sunday. I'm like, so how, how are you doing? What's going on in your life now? And she said she has a desire just to know about the Lord that she's never had. And she goes, you know, two weeks ago, I had a dream of this lady asking me if I want to see what death is like. And so I said, yeah. And then I read that chapter about hell and death in that book, and they lined up. And I realized that I needed the trust in Jesus. And I'm like, and we're not a church that does, has a lot of dreams and visions. Like, that is not part of our DNA, really. We do not go through that. But yet, I was like, man, the Lord is really just setting it up. I had no clue what I was doing by handing her that book. But he's orchestrating He's working in ways that we don't always see. Even when we can't see the details and how he's doing and we're wondering where he's at, we've got to continue the trust in this. Acts 17 verse 26 says that he has determined allotted periods and boundaries of all people's dwelling place that we should know God. He determines the time we live and the place where we live. He determines where we're going to worship, the people that we'll run into throughout the week. He sees all that. And God is working in you so that you can be a blessing to others. It's no accident that you live in the time you live in, that you live in the place you live in, that you know the people you know. And so I don't know all of you here today, but if you've never repented, that means turn from your sin and turn towards the Lord, I can say with confidence that that is why you are here today, that God wants you to trust in the Son, Jesus Christ, and His salvation that He offers he is the way that we can be reconciled to God to where we can have our sins blotted out. We can be made new. 
He gives us a new heart. In John chapter 3, he says that you'll be born again. I love that phrase because that's what happens when you come to Christ. You're born again. He changes your desires. He changes your nature. Romans 6, that we can walk in newness of life. And it's glorious. So I want to encourage you to do that today. So that was the second part of our sentence we're working through, point two. In this world, you'll have sin and suffering, but God is sovereign over all of that. And the third part, because God is sovereign, His purpose will stand. His purpose will stand. We need to go back to Genesis 15 to see this. I I love this point. So in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, Joseph's great, great, uh, I forget how many greats, but Joseph's grandpa, great grandpa, somewhere down the line. And if you remember, when he's making that covenant, the Lord says to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, that means foreigners, in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And so God says, Abraham, your offspring are going to be in Egypt. They're going to leave Egypt with lots of possessions. But first, they're going to be slaves for 400 years. And so when when Joseph's brothers sell him to Egypt, they have no clue what's going on. (laughs) No clue. They think that by selling him to Egypt, they're stopping the dreams from coming true. But in reality, they're actually fulfilling the dreams to coming true. And then on top of it, They're leading because Joseph's going to bring their whole family to Egypt. So they're actually fulfilling Genesis chapter 15. So God's fulfilling the dreams over Joseph's life. Then he's also fulfilling what he promised Abraham in Genesis 15. There's a bigger purpose to it. And this is what amazes me how God works because he can take the sins of favoritism and jealousy and hatred and false accusations and use them all to bring about his purposes. In fact, the brothers' sins are used to bring about their own deliverance. It's stunning. God is always working in bigger and greater ways than we can see. And is this not exactly how Jesus Christ operates? That he was sold, betrayed, falsely accused, crucified, yet in all of the wickedness and evil that happened at the cross, God uses it to bring about Deliverance for all mankind. You know, going back to that Bible study that I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon that I was a part of, do you know why I joined that Bible study? Because I was an unbeliever at the time. Obviously, you don't know why, because I didn't know any of you back then. But that was a silly question. I joined that Bible study because in my former life, I loved to smoke weed. And so I thought, if I join that Bible study, I'll get my wife on my good side, so then she'll allow me to smoke more weed. 
Now, I, I tried all kinds of different things at, during those days, and that was, my, that was the thing I loved. And it's interesting how the Lord can take someone with bad intentions going into a Bible study and yet use it for my good. Because I had no clue what God was doing through that Bible study. I just thought, let's get this thing over with. And yet the hound of heaven was after me. And that Bible study led me onto a path to where I became a believer and knew the Lord and grew in knowledge of the Lord to where I'm a pastor at the church where I told my wife I would never go back to. Funny how God works like that, isn't it? He can change lives. He's able to bring about good things out of evil intentions and actions and fulfill his purposes. And this is really, 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 really good news for us. We don't have to worry about the future. We can trust that even in sin and suffering, he has the ability to bring about good. And see, this is the thing about sin and suffering. It has the ability to make us not see light like storm clouds moving in, blocking out the sun. But yet we can trust that even when darkness hides his face, we rest on his unchanging grace. We know that God will be working, that he is working through any amount of darkness that we see. And brother and sister, we have a glorious future. We read in the end of the Bible what that's going to look like in Revelation 21. The Apostle John tells us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then a few verses later, he says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. <laughs> That's our future when we're in Christ. No matter how good a day we have here, the best is always yet to come. It's going to be so glorious. I think about heaven often, and I need to think about it more, especially with everything we have going on in the world coming out of pandemics and cultural infighting and wars going on and school shootings and all of that. And that doesn't even talk about our own personal struggles. It makes me long for heaven to where death is no more, pain is no more. We'll, we'll see. I, I've often thought, like with even in our own church family, we've had many who have lost loved ones, and I think about seeing that reunion that will happen. 
that we get to all be a part of, and what a glorious reunion that will be. And we don't have to think, well, this might happen. No, because when you look through Scripture, when you look at the story of Joseph, there is nothing, nothing that stops God's plans from going forward. His purpose will stand. And when we woke up this morning, we're one day closer. So until that day, we need to continue to walk in faith, to encourage one another, to remind one another of these glorious truths that we read in Scripture. Because we all need each other to make it to the finish line. It's the way God designed the church to work. To link arms with one another and say, let's go. Let's make it to that finish line. I've found more and more in 2 Timothy, in the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says, I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. There lays up for me a crown of righteousness. Oh, how I hope I can say that at the end of my life. I have fought the good fight. I'm ready to go. And so let's trust that even in sin and suffering, God is still sovereign, and therefore he will bring about his good purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the almighty creator. And we're thankful, Lord, that you offer us deliverance, that you are a faithful God, and that you will fulfill your word, that we can trust on it, that it's a rock that we can stand on, and all other ground is sinking sand, Lord, but your word is not. And so, Lord, may you strengthen us here today that we would run the race that you've called each of us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.